Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're now tuned into Querying the Air. I'm Iris and I'm joined in the studio with Charlotte. Hey, Hi Charlotte. Um, Hi, Iris. I'd just like to start with an acknowledgement of country. Um, we're broadcasting over the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. Um, all of this land that's called Australia is stolen. Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. Genocide and colonisation are ongoing and continuing on this stolen land. I'd like to pay respect to Indigenous elders past, present and future. And I'd like to acknowledge Indigenous people tuning in today and when this is podcasted. Um, so first, I, for today's show, we have got few, a bunch of things. Where Charlotte and I are going to be talking to each other, just having a little bit of a casual conversation. And we're going to be talking about mental health specifically and biophobia. And we'll also sort of touch on other big things as well. And later in the show, we'll um, we'll talk to some news items as well. So that's like some of the show that's coming up for you today. Um, so yeah, so we'll start off with having a chat. Um, so hi, Iris. So I just wanted to, um, so this is my first time presenting with um, Queering the Air and just essentially what I do in my kind of day job. I work in um, family violence and child welfare and I also do um, spoken word poetry. And a lot of that does come up with the themes of um, queer identity, mm-hmm. my experience as a woman of colour, and how that kind of is reflected in my art form. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't often talk about myself that much. I often focus on the interviews, but um, as well as like looking for jobs and all the hell of un- un- under and underemployment, also do some... Um, I bake cakes and do some dishwashing um, at a co-op and other things I do, also some creative things. I do some performing, I do some writing and poetry um, as well. So that's just a little few things I do. I'm a white settler and I'm trans, feminine and queer, some other aspects of me and that sort of, yeah, that's... There's a lot I could talk about in terms of bureaucracies and a lot of the difficulties of navigating transphobic bureaucracies and the difficulties of um, when your gender isn't really perceived by transphobic, transmisogynist society as real all the time and all the sort of challenges that poses. And that can impact mental health stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Um, Yeah. What... What would be um, one thing that some people would be surprised about you that can you think of something that what if some people won't know that's a bit surprising? Um, well, one of like on the face value, one of the things that I, especially me wanting to talk about um, bisexual mental health is essentially um, people won't automatically assume that I identify as queer. Um, so that's one thing that does come up, but also. Um, beyond that kind of thing and going to that discussion a bit more um, is I actually play music but I don't often do it often because I can get quite shy about that um, but even though which is weird given I like do performance poetry and stuff 
So yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. There's one thing I don't think I've ever talked about on air that listeners might not know about is I'm also very into a bit of. Oh, I suppose I'm not super into it because I haven't really got to the stage where I'm fighting people, but I'm a big fan of boxing. Oh, nice. How long have you been into boxing for? Um, I've been into boxing since the housemate that's um, now left. In, um, so that's that would be about um, since what month? Is it? I suppose it would be over a year and a half now. Okay. But I did have this period where I broke my wrist not related to boxing so I did no boxing when I was when my my wrist was um healing yeah yeah that was that was a big change in my life actually because I'm a bit I do a lot of boxing cool that's great I was actually thinking of getting um because I used to do mixed martial arts a few years ago and then I kind of just stopped because it wasn't something I wanted to be doing and also it was time factors but I was like last week at work I was looking at local boxing places as well yeah what sort of mixed so that's like a combination of all the the martial arts so um i'd done a bit of jujitsu previously mostly that one and then kind of wanted to work on some of the other skills i thought it was a bit out of my depth because i didn't have as much skills in terms of but it was a good experience and a welcoming environment for me there yeah and that was Here's Something by June Jones. You can find the launch of that single on the, um, at the Post Office Hotel on the 18th of October. And June is launching that with Kay um, Kalani. Um, so now we're moving on to a discussion of mental health. I think, sh- um, I think I'll start with yeah a bunch of Charlotte's thoughts on mental health and biphobia and a range of other things. Yep, sure thing. So one of the things I wanted to talk about um, is with um, Mental Health Week coming up next week is essentially... I think it's, it's, it starts this week, today. Yeah, actually yeah, it starts, starts today, today, doesn't it? Um, essentially the experience of um, bisexuals with um, mental health and how that... Um, some of the similarities and some of the differences and some of the things that might go um, unnoticed. So um, I actually had a friend of mine who had gone to the... Um, LGBTIQ Women's Health Conference earlier in this year and there was actually a speaker who talked specifically about the experience of people identified as bisexual within the um, the mental health space and essentially some sense of belonging, validation, inclusion and actually having that um, active discussion. So one of the things that was actually talked about is how there can actually be quite a high um, level of anxiety Um, for people who identify as bisexual because essentially feeling that there's not a great sense of belonging. Um, So say, for example, um, 57% of bisexual women will have a lifetime mental health disorder and 63% of bisexual non-binary folk will have a lifetime mental health disorder compared to, say, 41% of lesbians and 25% of people who identify as heterosexual. So this information came from a study that was completed um, by the Journal of Bisexuality in 2017. And I think those are some pretty, you know, significant statistics outlining some kind of the clear differences of what's kind of happening there. Mm, So, yeah. Um, What's behind these differences? What sort of... Can you touch on some of those factors? 
Um, I think one Simone. of the yep one of the things that makes it's quite a significant thing here is this, the sense of biphobia and not being as overt as some people um, may feel it is. So there's a sense of invisibility, the erasure of bisexuals um, in both heteronormative and queer spaces. So often, you know, some of the stereotypes of bisexuals within the media can be, you know, that cheating bisexual, someone who's just experimenting, or there isn't a strong character that's being represented. And when you don't have someone to look up to that is like you, it can feel quite um, difficult to present and you can feel quite disheartened about your experience. Um, And so, you know, some of the things when people think of, you know, those negative factors of bisexuals is that, you know, they're incapable of commitment, untrustworthy, more likely to cheat, and just going through a phase. And as someone who personally identifies as bisexual, I feel that these things are certainly things that I can um, have noticed in my own mental health, not realising they were linked to some of this um, bi-erasure, but there definitely is that link once you kind of dissect some of those things a bit more. And I think one of the things for um, bisexuals who are experiencing those mental health issues, maybe not making that connection between why they may be feeling um, the high levels of anxiety or feeling quite depressed or having more complex mental health issues and the impact of a lack of identity and validation maybe having on that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how does this play out also in... Um, an area like intimate partner violence. So, so has biphobia, is that also a way that people can police and keep? I don't know if you have any info on that. Um, so say, for example, um, some people who identify as, so people who identify as bisexual, I think in terms of coming out, there's a lot less people who come out. So I think the statistics about 28% at the moment as opposed to um, 50% of people will come out who don't identify as bisexual. And so sometimes in intimate partner relationships, what that can mean, there is a sense of um, power and control that can um, exist in intimate partner relationships, being like, you know, outing someone or invalidating them as you're not Mm. um, queer enough for this. And that can be quite disheartening and that can... Um, have a lot of cumulative harm in terms of relationship. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, do you have any info on how um, biphobia sort of interacts with, in terms of race, gender, class, ability? Um, I think it's, there's a lot, in terms of those intersections that exist there, I think, say, for example, um, when it comes to, say, for example, race, it's um, the idea that bisexual may not be validated again within a cultural community, um, an understanding of the uh, socially constructed binary that may not be as well understood um, within certain communities. And whilst it is um, you know, able to be explained, it can be exhausting. So um, in my own experience of trying to explain that in my own cultural background, it can be quite a difficult conversation mm. to navigate particularly to people of an older generation, about how that binary can, ex- um, sorry, how that kind of concept can exist. I know even I was watching ages ago this show, Grace and Frankie, and one of the, um, it was essentially about um, this, um, two business partners who've been, you know, they've been married to their um, female partners for like, 30 years and then it ended up they'd been in a relationship. And one of the characters ended identifying as gay and one of them actually ended up 
identifying as bisexual, but that word was never used within like the three seasons of the show, even though that was um, the identifying characteristic there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I also am thinking about um, how different it is in terms of gender. I think, um, I suppose for a lot of like men, homophobia and like toxic masculinity, there's a relationship between there. So there's kind of like this kind of, because of toxic masculinity sort of makes men afraid of being attracted to men in a sexual way. So there's whole lots of stuff that can go on in terms of that. And the thing with um, talking about women and non-binary people when they date men, I mean, there's other factors that go on, but that sort of like gendered power relationship yeah, it means a lot of women and non-binary people when they're dating men. But also, I suppose more broadly, there's that there's that power thing that can um, mean that abusive relationships can happen on that axis, but not limited to that. We know that queer relationships of all sort of genders, um, a third of them are abusive, so that we know, like... And we know it doesn't necessarily, like, follow, like, the, the macro sort of power sort of lines all the time. But there is overall that sort sort of does that does play out a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely see what you're, you know, saying about that the experience of um people bisexual identify differently, like say as you mentioned with um toxic masculinity and people who um identify as male and bisexual are more likely to be perceived as, you know, less manly for lack of a better term. Um, um and women who identify as bisexual, um, there's a lot of being objectified. Um, in those kind of spaces and, you know, being asked to join threesomes and things like that. And so that's kind of invalidating in terms of um, someone's identity as a bisexual isn't determined by the sexuality of their partner. And I think that's a thing that often does come into play in terms of feeling validated in your own identity. Mm, yeah, I kind of... I suppose this uh, is just the thought that goes back to biggest things that I think about in terms of queerness I guess like I have this like there's a more like there's a like understanding of queerness that's in terms of sexuality and sexual sexuality like differing from the heterosexual norm um and there's but I suppose like I take also understanding from queerness in terms of um queer as in reclaiming a slur as in terms yeah. of radically pushing against all the oppressive structures of society so um I think I've lost where I was going with that, but I was thinking, yeah, I, I think I've, I remember now. Um, so I think it frustrates me that so much is put on, like, like, so much of yourself is like so in a sort of like romantically obsessed society is put on like the person you're dating when, really, I think, as someone that's eternally single, like, my queerness isn't really defined by romantic partners because I don't really, I don't have any. So I really hate like this like obsession with defining people on the basis of a current romantic relationship or something. Yeah, I think that's a really kind of valid point, and I think it's um, a lot of people, you know, in terms of society, puts a lot of emphasis on that um, romantic relationships, and it really shouldn't be the case. And I think a lot of it comes from our own critical reflection of self, and say when we're observing situations are. Um, am I, you know, being, um, you know, erasing by, um, bisexual experiences? And sometimes that can 
often even be like internalized in terms mm. of what happens. Uh, I have a friend of mine who also identifies as um, bisexual and she was telling me that her friend who identifies as bisexual will only date men or lesbians won't date other bisexuals and I think that's well um a really interesting kind of perspective that this person has and I think that's fueled by a lot of internalized shame internalized um invalidation to kind of feel that that's something um that someone might feel they have to do in terms of their experiences of relationships Mm. um yes wondering if we could also touch on this concept called compulsory heterosexuality, which um, I suppose it's like heteronormativity in terms of pe- a lot of people are raised and live in a society that's like com- imposes heterosexuality on people. And I was thinking in terms of my, like the interesting thing, like I think a lot of my um, cis women bi friends have a really different experience to me as a trans feminine person because like as an assigned male at birth person, like I was sort of like society was like oh you should be attracted to to women which i'm uh had a pretty complicated growing up that i won't go into in depth here but um so i didn't go through this like like expectation to be attracted to to men through that and um and i suppose i grew up in a like supposed to go to all boys school and it had quite heavy toxic masculinity um norms no one was out about anything so yeah I'm just I think I'm getting to how some of the stuff I've thought about is how much is there's all these structures that sort of like limit people's agency and choices because yeah um like my whole growing up I didn't have really agency to explore anything and all this yeah I'm just touching on that there's so much that's limited to like what people can explore I guess yeah, I think definitely, you know, your experiences growing up and, you know, that what kind of space is provided to you um, can have quite an impact. You know, I personally went to a, you know, Catholic all-girls school and in that you, there were people who identified as queer, but it mm. was so hidden and it wasn't until years later that a lot of people, including myself, um, came out and if they were people who um, did op- were open, there was a lot of backlash from other students who weren't able yeah. to conceptually understand or accept that because there wasn't that exposure or proper um, kind of explanation or validation that particularly young people um, should be having. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, it's disappointing to see that I suppose a lot of, um, a lot of this is still intact and I suppose it's like safe schools we had like the moral panics around that and a lot of that was sort of discarded and that was really a very small information program that wasn't what the newspapers made it out to be at all um yeah and if you're tuned in now you're listening to querying the out on 3cr community radio 855 am on your am dial streaming live at 3cr.org.au slash streaming and on digital radio um i'm iris and i'm joined with charlotte in the studio at the moment um, I was also thinking about talking more generally about Mental Health Week. Do yeah, you want to? Sure thing. Um, and some of my experience with me- like limitations of mental health awareness raising. Um, I suppose last year I was Are You Okay Day, and 
I was like sort of told that I had to bake all these extra stuff for Are You Okay Day, um, which sort of like stressed me out. I wasn't really okay with baking all this <laughs> extra stuff in the same amount of time. So I was sort of overworked and stuff and had you know, all this anxiety about doing all these processes and stuff. And yeah, so I made the cake and I was like, oh, I've done all the extra things. And then I get told by one of the coordinators that I sort of undercooked the cake and I was, and I, a part of me was like, I think I'm glad I undercooked it because um, I was just overworked and I wasn't, yeah, I just didn't think I should have had to be forced to do that. And I suppose where I'm going with this in terms of is um, how a lot of things like we're forced to do impact our mental health, how like um, all the people locked up in concentration camps, dissension centres, in Melbourne, in Nauru, on Manus, those structures impact their mental health. And there's all these, and like work, you have overwork, that's going to impact your mental health. And I don't see um, much, I don't see awareness ways in really talking about how we can change these things as well, as much as, much as it is important that... Um, like a lot of these things, there's a lot of some practical things that are good, but I think there's also a lot of things that are missed from it. Yeah, I think definitely with a lot of, you know, bringing awareness about mental health, you know, things like Are You Okay Day, Mental Health Week, I think, say for example, if you ask someone, you know, Are You Okay? or if you ask them about something Mental Health Week, I think in asking those questions, there needs to be um, the skills and resources to be able to respond appropriately if someone says no I'm not okay or no I'm actually stressed out um and I think that's something that's probably it's not as well addressed as it could be and I think there certainly is more work to go in terms of that and letting people know what those kind of um resources are you know and also recognizing say for example you know accessing mental health services can be really difficult you know based on you know the structures of you know waiting times based on affordability based on if you're you know trying to access a mental health care plan you know the limit of sessions that you can have within a year Mm. and how that can kind of affect people who um are more affected by certain structures so if you're um, of a lower socioeconomic status you may be feeling you know uh, more affected by things like you know um, affordability of things of you know housing issues and that can impact your mental health but then you're the ones um kind of stuck with this kind of the boundaries of accessing mental health services when um, those most affected are probably the ones needing the services the most. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, and I find, find it frustrating that it's only often when um, we have things like the postal survey that then it's like, oh, there's this need for more mental health support and a few agencies are like, free mental health support for some queers when I suppose I think... The survey really, it was, it, like, that was nothing compared to struggling to navigate employment, struggling to navigate housing due to a range of different factors that impact my life all the time, and yet there's no call to, like, increase mental health support or increase support that would, like, make those things easier for me at all. So it's, like, it's frustrating how like, underfunded these things are and how, yeah... And I think, you know, say, for example, you know, when we focus on things like mental health, you know, how to help people improve, say, for example, 
you know, if they're working on improving a mood, someone's mood isn't going to necessarily improve, you know, um, as much as it could if they're still going through those, you know, um, housing and unemployment issues, those things are still going to be there. Um, And until those structures are kind of addressed, those kind of mental health concerns will exist in some way. Yeah, they definitely will. Um, I went to an an event on Friday, um, and this is also something listeners can go to. It's the Jabberong sort of like matriarchy sort of exhibition at Schoolhouse Studios in Collingwood that's running for a couple more weeks. Um, Yeah, and a lot of like the Aboriginal women spoke about like colonisation and that's another one of these structures that, yeah, we can talk about mental health in an individualistic way, but the sort of devastating impacts and the sort of like the amount of collective care you have to do to like survive and fight as, yeah, a lot of people are doing. And, um, yeah, Rika Woolery put on the exhibition and, and congrats to her and the other artists involved. Definitely check that out. Um, if you're around Collingwood or at Schoolhouse Studios sometime. Um, so that's just another thing that, yeah, another examples of, I suppose, like stuff that isn't talked about that much. And you have, I think, who's the president or, I mean, CEO of Beyond Blue at the moment? I'm like it's been sure. Jeff Kennett. I think yeah. it might be Julia Gillard now. Yeah. And I suppose, like, Julia Gillard, like, is responsible for overseeing a lot of terrible policies in terms of supported the ongoing intervention, supported the ongoing mandatory detention regime, and she's, like, now overlooking this organisation. Yeah, that's also something I often think about in terms of, like, the structures of society. Yeah, and I think, say, for example, if people say who are aware of, you know, the kind of, um, you know, policies that Gillard had kind of had in some of the things were problematic in those ways and then might be knowing that she may be, you know, um, heavily involved in Beyond Blue, maybe less inclined to engage with those servers because of the connection of certain people and um, services needing to recognise um, how, how people engage with them, what may stop people from engaging in services by things like that. Yeah, and yeah, it's frustrating when I suppose um, white feminism and liberal feminism puts her up as like the saviour because on the same day she did her misogyny speech, she cut the single parents payment that overwhelmingly affects a lot of single mothers because most single parents are single mothers. And it's just such a devastating blow because that was a payment that was above New Start and yeah, that's cut a lot of people's um, in- income. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the ramifications of that, um, you know, I see it personally in my work in working in family violence and child welfare, the impact it has um, on people when those kind of cuts are being made. And often there's, again, um, intersections into um, those kind of um, disadvantages. So, say, for example, often a lot of people coming from um, migrant backgrounds um, who then being affected by this single parenting payment then coming from low socioeconomic um, statuses and I think it having more of an impact so you're writing kind of that how it's 
kind of seems like this really weird dichotomy of saying mm. you're placing someone on a pedestal to ignore the kind of um, really heavy impacts that people can have and the, the ongoing impact it has on people's mental health. Yeah, definitely. Um, you're tuned into Quenia on 3CR Community Radio. This is Iris speaking with Charlotte in the studio. Um, we're going to go to a track now. Um, I'm going to play for you Nerves by Girion, which was recently released by them. And that track was, yeah, explores a lot of themes to do with transition and surgery. So I've heard from Girion, check them out, check out their music. Um, so um, one thing I'm going to mention is um, as much as things are underfunded and stuff, there is like some things you you can talk to a friend if if you're really struggling and need support. You can also talk to Switchboard, Switchboard's QLife, which is a phone and web counselling service that is free and non-judgmental, confidential and anonymous. Um, and all of the counsellors there are dedicated, trained volunteers who identify as LGBTIQI. You can call 1-800-184-527, 1-800-184-527, or web chat online, and that's open 3 p.m. to midnight every day. Um, yeah, I was just thinking in before about, yeah, just, yeah, just a bit on, I suppose, different communities supporting each other, and I suppose... Um, because of like different structures of oppression really have a big impact on people's lives and people's mental health and different psych conditions, they become overwhelming and all compounds and lack of support and stuff can contribute to being a lot of um, people in, in crisis in different communities um, I'm a part of and different communities I'm not a part of. Um, and I was just thinking about yeah, how do we, like, do community care or take care of each other better? I suppose that's, like, one way that could be averted. It's something I think about a lot. Um, and I also think about sometimes it's... Yeah, I think, like, there's so many different dynamics that influence how you can... Um, if you feel like you can ask for support or if you're expected at, expected to be sort of, like a rock or something because a lot of writers write about um a lot of women women of color expected to hold things together and that's really like plays into some really patriarchal sort of racist ideas that when really everyone should be supported and these dynamics sort of have to be fought otherwise you just get people like burnt out and and we get yeah, people um, who don't have support and people who are supporting everyone else instead of, like, working on something creative, they're just supporting everyone else. Yeah, I think definitely um, for people who are um, in support roles, it's often forgotten that um, those people who support people who um, need support too. So I think one thing I'd actually written in... Um, something I'd written with some of my poetry once is, um, you know, when you are a support person, you're seen as a person with quite big hands because you're always there. 
to kind of um, offer a helping hand, but then people forget that your hands need holding too. Um, and that kind of thing. And say, for example, with me, you know, critically reflecting on my, you know, experiences of a um, queer woman of colour working in social work and how much of that is, um, whilst it's work and identity that I'm very, um, feeling very valid in and very welcome in, um, that emotional fatigue in existing as a person with so much of that and professionally working in those spaces and recognising those things. Mm. Yeah, another thing I was just thinking about is um, Leah Lashmi wrote this article about um, from like a time of her success, she's a brown woman, a queer woman of colour and disabled woman of colour in over in US, Turtle Island, and she wrote about how it's this pin- she won something and people would expect you to be like, wouldn't expect you to be in a crisis, but she was, and she wrote about this idea of this this fear of this, this sort of a fear of craziness, or I think, I think this side affects me in terms of my own psychological stuff and my own times of like um, high emotional distress. I think there's like, yeah, people don't know what to do, I suppose. And also there's this fear around it and people in this fear that if you're like honest about how you feel that you're going to be discarded in some way. And I think, yeah, with um, following on from that is there's often this um, socially acceptable way of explaining, you know, um, your experiences of mental health and mental distress. And when it's beyond that box category of what people feel that they're comfortable and able to, um, it can be quite difficult to talk about mental health experience when it isn't something that people have seen before or um, mm. feel that it's represented well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just really important to have a lot of these this discussions, really. And then, I mean, some people have done emotional first aid sort of stuff. And there's also, yeah, there's some very specific things that impact different communities. And that I think I mentioned a few um, little like feminine nairs that happened on last week's show that Leo Lakshmi ran one. And then Kai Chang, Tom, and another trans woman I've forgotten run another one and they like went into some really specific stuff that I thought was really helpful it isn't talked about enough and I can um put a link in the notes for the podcast about that um yeah so I think unless we have anything else in this area I think we're going to move on to the news items um so this is one that's been happening that's a bit dated now but I think it was a really important thing that relates to stuff that's happening here in this state um so on August 16th Peruvian born trans woman of color Vanessa Campos was murdered in Paris um and this is happening in in France that has recently introduced the Nordic model which is a model that's also come into discussion this year in terms of liberals, in terms of um, some people on the left that are like sex worker exclusionary and have a history of supporting projects that are sex worker exclusionary, like Project Respect. And that includes someone like Kathleen Maltzan that's running for Rich, the, the seat of Richmond, mm. even though like she's distanced herself. Um, 
as like I interviewed Jane Green earlier in the year, a number of people um, at some months ago, she still believed there was merit in the Nordic model. Mm. So that's like concerning. Um, and a quote from a research institute over in France, National Centre for Scientific Research and and Ex-Marsili University, um, found that 63% of sex workers have experienced deterioration of their living conditions, more isolation and greater stress, and 42% are more vulnerable to violence as a result of the introduction of the Nordic model. Violence of all kinds has increased. Insults in the street, physical violence, sexual violence, theft, and armed robbery in the workplace, the report concluded. And that's a quote from Vanessa Campos' sex worker mur- murder protests on Vice. So yeah, following, so the, like the good thing about, it's pretty messed up and horrible, but the only good thing to come out of this has been a lot of protests, I think, yeah, including a few people did some things in Australia around this, raising the issue. Um, so that's like, there's been good solidarity in terms of this like really horrible event that's linked to some structural things in terms of Nordic well, in terms of racism, trans misogyny. Um, and like citizenship, sort of, yeah, um, yeah, the lack of rights given to people who aren't citizens of a country. Um, another sort of news item is the Horn Prize, which some of my listeners might have heard about. It's it was a sort of a it was a it's a prize for an essay. I think it was about ten thousand words, and only really came into the media a few weeks ago when some of the judges realised there was this guideline that said that the essay is written by people of, like, that essay is written on the topic of, like, LGBTI communities should be written by people in that communities or people, um, essays written on Indigenous issues should be written by Indigenous people. So there's a guideline saying that. And then we had a bunch of judges sort of quit the board which is really, um, um, re- it was really sort of taken apart really well by Jack Lattimore, who also appeared on Thursday Breakfast on this. And from an Indigenous sort of standpoint, he wrote, and I quote, like people of colour the world over, blackfellas are sick and tired of having our stories ripped off by, the, by historically privileged white writers. Um, do you have any thoughts on that whole... Yeah, I think it's definitely, um, you know, in spaces where, you know, you come from a you know, minority group or there's been a lot of, you know, systemic oppression and then hearing someone else try and tell your story without having that experience can feel really invalidating and it's really tiring when our stories have often been told time and time again and um, I think it's a really valid point that has been made that, you know, um, people who should be able to present their stories and not feel someone else is trying to write it for them. It's like, you know, when you come from a minority group, um, intersections within that is it feels like, you know, a narrative's written in pencil and if you're a, um, you know, a privileged, um, you know, white writer, it can feel like they're trying to rewrite that narrative in pen. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way to kind of look at it. Mm. Yeah, it shows like how behind a lot of these, um, a lot of the literary sort of 
these the people that make up these you sit on these things are I suppose there was yeah I suppose yeah I think in that case there was a couple of the white judges left but the indigenous judge stayed I think Marshall Langner was on the panel um so I think I think some people on Twitter were referred to it as like an example of white fragility in that case and I think and with a lot of those things, um, you know, when those kind of guidelines come into place and when people feel saying, hang on, this guideline may be requiring me to question my own um, privilege or um, the kind of uh, microaggressions I may exhibiting, I mm. think that can be challenging for a lot of people to acknowledge that there can be problematic parts of our own character, even if they're not overt in yeah. that expression. Yeah, Definitely. You're listening to Querying Out on 3CR Community Radio, and that was Katie Spit with How's the Weather. You can check out um, Katie Spit now on Spotify. Um, not, I don't want to promote that service, but I was just—it's just like they only recently got on Spotify. That's what I meant. To, yeah, um, yeah. So we're just going to talk about some upcoming events. We're both involved in a fundraiser that's coming up um, on. This yeah on the October tenth. Yep, so that's Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday, six p.m. to eleven p.m. at at Loop Bar, twenty three Myers Place, Melbourne. Um, so it's sort of raising events for in the In Sickness and Self Art Collective, which we had on last show. I checked that out. And the other thing I was going to promote is the Imagining Abolition fundraiser. That's on October 17th from 7pm to 10pm at the Gasometer Hotel. And that features a quite a long range of artists, Aisha, Daniel, Aaliyah, Danny Sib, DJ, Kayans, Dreaming Now, Hawaiian, Idol and Yusuf, Lady Lash, Moral Spirium, Pataphysics and Race Rage. So a, lo- a long lineup, and that's a fundraiser to get a bunch of... In- Indigenous and um, and also black people to the abolition the the conference that's happening in Sydney. They just need some funds to get there. There's a prison abolition conference happening. No, not in Sydney, in Brisbane in November, and that's what that fundraiser is for. Bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.